At one point in that flight, and I'm never going to forget this, something clicked, and I said to myself, you know, it's no problem. I'm over the field I need to be to land out. If I have to land out, I'll just fly in here, and when I land, I land. You know, that click in my head made me relax, you know, made me fly way better. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 68. Thank you for joining us for another aviation journey. Also, a big thank you. Our brand new Patreon pilot is Terry Waters. Thank you, Terry. We greatly appreciate your support. And thank you to our other Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast and make it possible for us to keep bringing you great soaring content. If you'd like to be our next Patreon pilot, all you need to do is go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky. Another great guest. Next, this episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. On this episode, we head to central Chile in South America and join David Flint, a glider pilot, flying his Labelle H301, enjoying the beautiful Andean playground. He will share with us what it's like to soar in that part of the world and his aviation journey. Then later, we will get some advice from another great pilot on our soaring safety segment. Also on this episode, a brand new soaring tips and techniques segment for you. Clemens Chipek will be joining us as we learn about soaring in conversions. And SkySight is giving you a chance to use their service absolutely free with the coupon code. We will have that for you on this episode. David Flint, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you here today. Where are you flying from? Hey, Chuck. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. And I'm actually flying out of Chile, South America at the moment. Wow. That's got to be an experience. Uh, yeah, the, the terrain here is, is pretty amazing. You know, it's, it's, as soon as you learn to fly, I was lucky to learn to fly uh, in gliders, and you're basically cross-countrying as soon as you're soloing. So it's a, it's a totally different experience. So are you flying out of a local club there? Uh, yeah, I am. I'm flying out of, uh, it's called Club de Planeadores de Valparaiso in Spanish, and it's a, a local club that's been around for a long time but it was it was kind of dead for a bunch of years and then in the last 20 years it's been getting a lot more active and a lot more members and it's in the in the middle of central chile so can you tell me about the terrain there at the glider port what are you getting as far as you getting ridgelift thermals what's what's the area you're flying in well it's it's mostly ridgelift i mean to put you into perspective of how the country is it's basically a 4,000-kilometer-long country, right? And the easternmost border is the Andes mountain chains, uh, which are a bunch of 15,000-foot peaks. And a little bit towards the west, you have another mountain range about 20 miles to the west. It's called the, uh, the Coastal Mountain Range, which is 6,000-foot uh, peaks. And my club is at the, at the, uh, at the foot of these 6,000-feet 
uh, ridges. So it's mostly uh, ridge flying uh, real close to the airport. So you get towed up in, up to about 1,500 feet on a little hill that usually has lift. And it's all ridge lift from there on around the entire area. And that's during the summer. And in the winter, we've been, the last few seasons, we've been discovering some uh, some wave in the same area, which is pretty cool. Oh, very nice. That's my favorite, ridge lift. I haven't been fortunate enough to do any wave flying yet, but I love to do that. But yeah, the ridges are so much fun. So you only need like a 1,500-foot tow that's aero tow, right? Exactly. It's aero tow. We actually have a winch, uh, but we only have a 2,000-foot dirt runway. So it's not long enough for the for the winch to be of any use to us. So we're, ma- we're mainly towing with a, a Super Cub. And there's also a, a steerman that we use when the Super Cub is, is down, which is pretty cool as a tow plane. So what did you learn to fly in? What was the ship? Uh, I learned to fly in a Bergfalke 255, uh, a more popular ship in, in Europe, I think, than the U.S. It's a, a 1960s evolution, I believe, of the MU-13, which was the, the glider they used in the 30s to train the, the Germans to fly. It's kind of like a, a Blanick made out of uh, wooden fabric, though. So it's a, it's a pretty cool glider, impossible to put into a spin, flies real slow, and it's just a great glider to fly and to learn in. Uh, great trainer. What's the ratio on that? It's probably, what, 20 to 1, something like that? I believe it's like about 24 to 1, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that's a good trainer. Yeah, absolutely. David, when did your aviation adventure begin? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try and make it short, but... Um, it started basically thanks to my dad. He was a uh, we, we we lived in America for for the early years of my life. My dad was studying chiropractic in Georgia, where I was born in Marietta, Georgia, and he had always uh, had the love for flight and didn't really have the money to become a pilot until he got to Georgia. He joined the Civil Air Patrol, learned to fly, and was uh, flying out of there. Basically, as soon as I was born, I was you know two months old and going flying with my dad. And he taught me how to walk on Dobbins Air Force Base there in Atlanta, Georgia. So as long as I remember, I've had the love for flight. Now, when we came down here to Chile, uh, my dad, for work reasons, we came to live here. Everywhere we went, we would stop by the local airport. And one day we we were staying at some cabins by, this, uh, by my glider club. We saw a steerman towing a banner uh, back to the airport. So, of course, uh, dad and his little kid went to see the the steerman. We got to know the people there and the pilot who eventually, you know, many, many years later became my instructor. We met the whole operation, which happened to be a a glider club. My dad has never really been into uh, gliders. So I learned how to build uh, an RC glider and got into that, the RC world for a little bit. Thankfully, I didn't put that much money into it. So I only had a glider and I think a... an extra 300 and that's where I stopped and finally started to learn how to fly gliders because I wanted to learn how to fly gliders it was the first thing that I could learn to fly because of the the age limit which is uh it's actually 17 here in Chile so it's nowhere near the age of the US or Europe but it was the first thing I could learn how to fly and so I did that and I fell in love with it and and the whole operation and the the club and and everything, and I haven't stopped since. So how is the ridge soaring there? You said you have the small hill, you can get some lift, and then you go onto the ridges. Are there some pretty long ridges, or how does that work out? 
you can get some good 150 kilometer cross country flights kind of locally around uh, the, the the small ridges we have and you get to about 9000 feet you have to you have to remember that these hills are so big that the scale is just huge so you know high altitude might seem like really high altitude but you're still on the ridge here in in, in these mountains uh, so you got to use oxygen and stuff like that a lot of the time but you get to do some pretty good cross country or, or locally around our field and then if you want to um, to go to the Andes, a 4,000 kilometer wall of just mountains that you could get to Ridge Store, you have to actually cross about 20 miles of dead air from where we are to the foot of the Andes Mountains. So you got to get some good altitude. We usually get uh, about 10,000 feet. And that limitation is because we have to, during our crossing, we cross over the VOR uh, into the international airport. So any altitude above that and you're conflicting with uh, airliner traffic. So that's a pretty big leap, you know, from, from our hills to the Andes Mountains because, you you know, at a conservative 1 in 25, you're going to lose like 4,000 feet just crossing over. And then you got to get to the Andes and you get to um, Ridge Soar all the way up north usually is where we go. And, you know, we've had some, not not myself personally, but, We've had some members do 750 kilometer flights and other people in the country have done uh, a thousand kilometer flights, stuff like that. So it's, it's real, it's real interesting. Yep. What are you flying right now? What's the ship? Right now I'm flying a LaBelle, which I, this past season, uh, it's winter now. It's uh, autumn really. This past season I was able to trade up to a LaBelle H301B which is the, I believe it's the standard class version with the flaps and the retract. And it's the first time I get my hands on a, on a glass ship. So it's, it's been a, a real interesting learning curve and it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, quite the transition. How has that transition been? Well, I first transitioned into a Pilatus B4, which is a, a Swiss-made uh, aerobatic glider, actually. And that's made out of aluminum and metal and feels like a tank. It flies a little bit better than our than our training two-seater. And of course, it's it's aerobatic, so it's a ton of fun. But the transition from that into the LaBelle has been, you know, everything is closer by the numbers, I, I feel. Um, using flaps is the first time I've had my experience with flaps. It has positive flaps. It has negative flaps, which is something that's totally new to me. The The speeds are all different. The air brakes are are way way worse than all the other gliders I've flown, so you got to be careful with landing. You know, our our runway isn't that long, so you don't want to over or undershoot. But it's been so much fun. I mean, it, it allows you to do so much stuff that you didn't think were possible with with other gliders. You know, the the ratio is way better. Negative flaps, you know, it changes the profile of the wing, and it allows you to fly way faster with the same sync rate so it's just something that takes a little getting used to what has been one of your most interesting flights maybe one of the most eventful flights that really stuck in your head there are a few of them really but one of the flights that really stuck in my head was once i was flying the pilatus out of our our field and a little bit to the south we have um a, a crossing right um a gap in the hills where you cross over to another valley this valley usually has excellent lift and the, the ridge supports you. 
the whole way down to the south. And then you come back and you need a certain altitude to get back over that gap, right? And what happened was this valley has a, a different like access point where the wind from the from the ocean comes into the valley. So it's a little less protected than the valley where my glider club is is located. So basically when you jump that gap, you're into a different weather system. And what happened when I was on my way back north, a cloud cover basically covered that entire valley and everything that was great lift became sink. When I when it got time to make the decision whether to, to jump that gap or not, I came to the conclusion that it was going to be real close and I wasn't going to make it. So I, you know, I got pretty worried, you know, started circling around there in that in that valley. And of course, we have set out land out locations, you know, that are are known previously. The problem here in, in this part of the country, at least, is that you don't have a lot of fields that are good for landing out. So every year we scout out different fields that we think are, are good and, you know, are not plowed and stuff like that. So I knew there was a field there, but I was just, you know, I've never landed out and knock on wood, I still haven't. But um, I was able to locate the field that I would possibly land in. But I was, I, I, found, my, I found myself, you know, with sweaty palms, really nervous. You know, I, I can't get back over this, this gap. This sucks you know, kind of worrying. At one point in that flight, and I'm never going to forget this, something clicked. And I said to myself, you know, it's no problem. I'm over the field I need to be to land out. If I have to land out, I'll just fly in here. And when I land, I land. You know, that click in my head made me relax, you know, made me fly way better. And I was eventually able to get back above the gap and back to my to my runway. A lot of my head was hindering me from flying well and getting back over that gap because I was so nervous. So the minute I clicked and I said, you know what, I'm local over where I need to land. I just need to fly around here, have fun. And if I have to land, I land. I was able to, you know, I think fly a lot better, get a little more coordinated, get the correct lift and get back over that gap. So that was my almost land out story. Now, have you ever had to land out? Uh, thankfully, not yet. You know, it's something that I know eventually is going to happen, but uh, I haven't had to land out yet. I think it's a great idea that you all scope out landing spots, you know, because of the terrain in your area where there's not a lot of great areas to land. I mean, that would be something that a lot of clubs could do if they don't already, because it just makes more sense. It's smarter flying. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have... We, I believe we, 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 everyone chips in to take the toe up once a year and we just scope out all, all the fields that we think are going to be decent. And if there's one that's, that we think is decent enough, we may even go talk to the farmer and stuff. And, and it's not like in Europe where someone lands out here in the country and I mean there, and they, you know, they know it's a glider and gliders land out here. A lot of times people can call the police or think, you know, someone crashed or something like that. So it's not, not as well known as it is there. So a little explaining beforehand comes in handy a lot of times. Other flights that have been interesting are, you know, they so happen to be when I'm uh, least prepared, which is kind of funny. It's a recurring thing that happens with me. Every time I like make a sandwich and plan on flying real long, um, I'm, I end up like landing at 20 minutes after the tow. And times when, you know, I was I was ground crew for one of our, our club members in one of the competitions in Santiago, which is the capital. And he felt sick one day and he said, you know what, why don't you fly instead of me today? Not in the competition, but just 
go out and fly around this terrain and everything. And I was like basically briefed on the spot by my instructor on what to expect and where to go and was one of the best flights of my life. It's actually the the video I sent you. That was uh that was that day. So you know, it usually happens that the more I prepare for a flight, like uh, food-wise, and I get a bunch of water and some great snacks, I end up flying for twenty minutes. So just don't <laughs> don't pack any snacks, and you know you're gonna have a long flight, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, have you posted some other videos? I can put that on the show notes so people can check out that video you sent me. But do you have some other ones up there? Yeah, I do have a bunch of videos on my channel. You know, I I was inspired at one point a lot by uh, Bruno Vassell and his videos. Oh, yeah. They're nowhere near the quality. I have a, a few of them. I, I, I'm, I'm not that proud of them, but I just, I like posting. I like recording because I think it's a good debrief tool. Oh, it is. Absolutely. You know, it's hard to remember everything when you're flying, you're, you're enjoying it and you're focusing on aviating and uh, navigating, but it's nice when you can go back and look at those flights. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, a there's a ton of things you don't notice while you're flying that, don't really change your flying, but they're, they're habits that you can get out of, you know, uh, like over, over controlling the stick happens a lot of time where it happened personally to me a lot, you know, where you're making corrections that really aren't doing anything to the glider. So you just gotta, you know, steady your hand and, and fly better. And it's just a, a great tool overall. Yeah, absolutely. Have you flown with any large birds, hawks, birds of prey, anything like that there? What's, what kind of birds do you have there in South America? Definitely. Uh, we have actually, um, we have hawks, which are, are, you know, you see normally. And when it's sufficient, uh, sufficiently cold and you're sufficiently high enough, you run into the Andean condor, which is, uh, I think it's the largest bird in the world. It has a three meter wingspan. Wow. And that is absolutely amazing. It's, it's, it's incredible. You know, the big, huge birds that they really aren't scared of gliders. So, you know, you can enter a thermal with one of these birds and, and you'll have them right above you. And they're, they're incredible. So have you, you've flown with a few of those? Yeah. Yeah. I've flown with a few condors. Wow. Quite a large bird. That must be crazy. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's big, you know, three meter wingspan. The, the top of the wings has a, a beautiful, you know, white plumage and, and the wingtips have like these three, they're kind of like winglets. They're like three, uh, three feathers just sticking out. It's, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. So if money was no object, um, do you have a dream ship that you would like to fly? I actually haven't really thought about it. Eventually I'm in, I'm in med school right now. So eventually I hope to be able to, uh, get my own ship. And, um, we have, a uh, club member who recently bought a uh, stem which is an incredible glider oh yeah nice. and uh another one who actually just ordered a brand new js3 wow which is the you know uh, J uh south african i believe jonkers glider and you know that's like the most the high performance glider there is i i even believe it has a jet engine oh my um instead of instead of like a regular regular engine so uh, if I ever get into competing, you know, I guess I, I, I would like, you know, the best of the best, but just the glider for, for, you know, leisure flying is the, the LaBelle is actually, is absolutely awesome. I love it. I like the LaBelle. I haven't flown one yet, but they look like they're very nice. Yeah. They're a little cramped. Yeah. They do look a little, they're a little cramped, but I'm not, I'm yeah. And I'm not, I'm not that large of a person, 
thankfully. So it actually feels like you're strapping on the glider. You know, you, you kind of put the canopy around you and above your head and, and you can actually take the whole thing off. So if you're not that, that large of a person, it's, it, it feels really tight and nice and, and comfortable. You know, it's like you're, you're part of it. That's the advantage we have. I'm only five, seven and I've been comfortable on anything I've flown so far. So <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about, yeah, I'm about five, nine as well. So we will get right back to our guest, but right now our soaring safety segment with the previous guest, Rich Mateas. Follow the guidelines. Safety first. Um, the FAA puts out uh, the, all the information you need to know to be a safe pilot. Um, so, uh, yeah. So you know, you're, 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 the, the, the challenges are always going to be that you want to, you may want to um, stay up a little longer. Uh, but you don't have the height, so you have to be aware of conditions. Uh, where are the winds? Am I, am I safe? Am I, am I proficient enough to fly with a 10-knot crosswind? You know, yeah. making good decisions. I think that's the, the, the basic for safety is making good decisions. Um, and uh, and uh, don't push the envelope. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment, you can do that. Just get a hold of me, Chuck, at SoaringTheSky.com. Have you had any near misses in the air? I mean, it's not something we all like to talk about, but it is something we can learn from. Definitely. Um, I haven't had any near misses that actually made me worry. When I was flying in, in Santiago, I had my flarm go off. But anyone who's used the Flarm knows that it's a little bit oversensitive. But definitely that occasion, you know, I had the Flarm go off. And, and you know, if you haven't used the Flarm, it's basically a little box that has different lights that uh, light up and make a noise depending. It's like a, a, a circle of lights, right? So basically each glider has the Flarm. And um, if the Flarm of each glider de 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 detects each other, a light will go off on that box showing where that other glider is, right? So I was flying once and the flarm went off and the light that went off was directly in front of me, right? Oh, wow. So it took me a few seconds to realize where that glider was coming. And luckily we both saw each other and, you know, the, the, the rule is each glider goes right. So luckily it was a, he was a couple kilometers up ahead and I was able to go right and I saw him go right as well. So had I not been using the Flarm, that could have been a different story. So there, there goes something with the, in favor of, of the use of those instruments, which I think are, are really, really good. Absolutely. Are there any weather products you use that you like to check things out before you go up in the air? Um, yeah, I don't know if they're all, uh, paid. We use actually for our weather, we have the, the Chilean Air Force weather soundings and weather balloons that they launch up. So we get to, there's a web page where you get to see, you know, particular weather conditions and they have a whole section for glider pilots, which is pretty cool. But that comes out usually 12 in the day, 12 in the afternoon, I mean. So it, you know, if you want to take off earlier than that or you want to start preparing it's a little late in the day. So we actually found the Wyoming, some Wyoming university that launches balloons here every morning, about eight in the morning. Oh, wow. And they get the same weather info 
a lot earlier. So we tap into that and we see the, you know, the temperature curve and see if there's any thermal inversions. And, and that's a good, uh, good, good method we use. Wow. It sounds like you have some very useful tools there. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, and there's nothing better than looking out the window as well. Of, of course, absolutely. You, you know, certain, certain conditions are gonna, are gonna create certain weather, you know, Usually before any storm around here, you'll get uh, high north winds, which create a wave in our location. And usually after after the storms, you get a lot of cumulus buildup. So, you know, it, it probably is going to be a good day to fly before and after a storm. Never during. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned your club wasn't, you, you know, years back wasn't real active. It was, and then it had a time where it wasn't. But mm-hmm. what do you think has brought the club back? And what do you think we can do to bring clubs back? I think something that's extremely important is, you know, the change of members and the welcoming of, of new members that are that are young, you know, because what happened, I believe, you know, I've only heard the stories, is that the club was created and no new members were accepted for a long time. And those members... Uh, eventually got old and stopped flying and and that's where the club kind of kind of died so you had only a couple people flying a year and then they finally started accepting uh, a a bunch of new people myself included you know and a bunch of other young guys you know the kids of the of the pilots that were flying that uh, hadn't been of age yet it brought new life into the club and we've been accepting a bunch of uh, new people into the club with uh, new ideas and, and enthusiasm. So as long as you have uh, people that are, that are willing to create, you know, the club life and be there during the weekend and not just fly, you know, barbecues and events and just have fun, it's, it's going to be no problem. You know, you just got to start people out young and have them, you know, have the love for aviation young and, and fly forever. You know, I, I can't see myself ever stop stopping flying. Absolutely. That is the, the key, you know, getting the young people involved. They are the future of the clubs and they're going to keep these clubs going. Exactly. exactly. Do you have anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Maybe someone that's been influential in your flying? Most definitely. I got I to gotta thank my dad for, you know, giving me the love of aviation. Everyone in my club has been a, a huge help, you know, uh, my, my, both my instructors and all my friends in the club. You know, I, there's some people that I think would be great, great guests on here. We've had one of my instructors was in France uh, a few years back, and he met uh, Jean-Marie Clement, who wrote an incredible book on uh, wave conditions and wave flying called Dancing with the Wind. He basically, you know, literally wrote the book on wave flying and his expeditions down here in Patagonia. So he came back with so much knowledge and stuff that he's been teaching and we've all learned from that and, and how to find wave and what conditions create wave and everything. So that's a, a real cool story. And Jean-Marie Clement was actually here this past season mounting an expedition up north looking for wave in the volcanoes up in the Atacama Desert. So he was using one of our, our, our members' stem and just flying around there. And we also got visited this past season by Klaus Ullmann, which currently holds the the world the world record distance for glider. And so that was an an amazing experience. You know, we we've been lucky because we're just a small dirt strip in the middle of uh, kind of nowhere. Since gliding isn't that popular in this country, you know, you 
you tend to meet people that you wouldn't normally meet, which is just an amazing learning experience. You know, I try and act like a sponge and take in as much as I can. So just a shout out to my entire club who's who's made this happen. And and I hope there's there's more from here on. If you could tell someone how to be a better and safer pilot from the experiences you've learned along the way and in the air, what would you tell them? I think, you you know, definitely, uh, you know, the, the video debriefs I was talking about are great, even if you're not going to post them anywhere or anything, you know, record yourself and find your mistakes and, and, and learn from them. Definitely, you know, every so often go up with an instructor because a lot of times you're making mistakes that you don't even realize. I personally have set up a, a chart with my personal min- minimums, you know, my club has has done an incredible job of mapping out all of the the mountains around our club and in the Andes with conservative minimums of, you know, how high you want to be at this point if you want to get to somewhere safe where you can land. And that's been incredible for helping us navigate and stuff. But, uh, you know, I personally uh, try and, and understand my limits and never be too never try and cross over them definitely and even when those limits are conservative i try to set my own and if something isn't feeling right it probably isn't right no matter what the sky looks like no matter uh what glider you're in you know that gut feeling i think is something that could save your life and so definitely listen to it you know you never stop learning you never you're never the best pilot you can be i think so just appreciate that and 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 be humble about it and you'll you'll never have a problem that's what i think thank you david that's some great advice where do you see yourself in the future when it comes to aviation well you know i definitely want to continue flying uh gliders i think i'm never gonna stop it's 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 the part of flying that i enjoy the most eventually i'd love to get my power license as well financials permitting obviously but you know glider flying i think is where it's at and where my heart is and and like I said, uh, from here on to the future, I'd like to get my my pilot's license, maybe my instrument, you know, just become a better pilot at everything I can with as much as I can. Everyone dreams as a little kid to be an astronaut. <laughs> and I think um, if, if I'm if I'm if I'm lucky enough, I'd love to I'd love to one day try and become an astronaut. You know, I've got to study a lot, finish my medical degree and keep flying. And maybe one day I'll, I'll at least try and you know, become one. So that's something that I'm still dreaming of and, and I hope to pursue it one day. But but that's basically it. I mean, there's not much more I can say about aviation. I'm, I'm in love with it. David, do you have anything you'd like to add? Well, sure. I think glider flying is um, in a world where we're trying to find everything that's cleaner and, and, and less contaminating to our, to our environment, which I, I think is a great is a great thing. Inside the world of aviation, one of the points is that glider flying has a huge potential. You know, it's it's basically a sport like sailing. Uh, it makes you understand how nature works a lot better. It makes you become a way better pilot, you know, a stick and rudder pilot. And, you know, you talk to a lot of instructors that say that, you know, anyone that comes from a glider background is a, is a way better student because they understand the basic mechanics of flight and they're good on the rudder. So I think it's it's a sport that uh, everyone should try and get into. And 
there's that misconception, you know, that everything in aviation is expensive. I'm not going to say glider flying is cheap, but it's definitely easily, you know, half, if not more of the cost of, uh, of, of regular, you know, powered flight. So it's a lot more accessible to a lot more people that I think don't even realize it. So if you have any, uh, love for aviation or anything, gliders are probably the best way to start. David, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a lot of fun. Nice talking to you. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I was, you know, during during this whole worldwide situation we're going through, I was just getting into podcasts and a little wishful thinking. I typed in what I thought would be something really, really cool. And, you know, lo and behold, I found your podcast, which I couldn't believe because, you know, I sometimes think glider pilots need a lot more love. So uh, it was absolutely incredible to find your your show and I'm I'm honored and really happy to be on here. Thank you, David. I'm I'm blessed that you were you found it and you're listening and very thankful for everyone that's listening and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get the word out. So thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And now our soaring tip segment brought to you by SkySight. Use the coupon code Soaring the Sky, all one word all capital letters and get an additional 10 days beyond their seven day free trial. If you've used SkySight before, but you want to try it again, you can also use the coupon code. And now our SkySight Soaring Tips pilot, Clemens Chipek. Clemens Chipek, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. So glad to have you today. How are I'm you? I'm great, Jack. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, if the listeners haven't heard yet, you are on episode 14 if they want to hear more of your story Austria and the Alps, so if they want to check that out. But today I want to concentrate a little more on technique conversions. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Of course, you have the blog. Yes, I have a blog. It's called Chess in the Air, chessintheair.com. Like you play chess and you do it in the air, and that's basically what soaring is. And you spoke a little bit about convergence on there. So why did you share? Yeah, I can definitely talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, I think that convergence, um, convergence for us, where we fly in, in Boulder, I fly in Boulder, Colorado. And um, for us, convergence flying is, is super important because we have a very reliable convergence line that sets up um, just on the east side of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, typically that sets up when you get a westerly wind uh, coming. This is the prevailing winds, right? The high winds that are coming from the west. Uh, they come over the Rocky Mountains and then uh, on, on, over the foothills on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, there is a uh, there are thermals that are setting up in the morning. And those thermals, they're pulling air out from the plains, from the eastern plains. So you have a, a wind that is coming from over the mountains that is from the west. And you have a wind that is generated by thermal activity. And that wind is coming from the east. And where the westerly wind and the easterly wind, where they come together, the air has to go somewhere. Uh, and it, it certainly can't go into the ground. Uh, so uh, there's only one way it can go, and that is up. And that is that is the convergence line. So convergence in general just describes uh, basically uh, a, a coming together of two air masses. So think of it as, as air blowing from two different directions towards each other. Uh, and whenever that happens, there's always a ground. Uh, whenever that happens, the air goes up. And uh, and I think it's a, it's a very... I mean, for us, it's super important because it, it sets up almost, you know, every other day. Um, uh, some convergence lift sets up almost every other day. It's very, very common anywhere else as well. I think it's a very underestimated 
form of lift. Uh, there's many different uh, reasons why convergence lines form. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's more complex probably than, than other types of lift. Uh, it's not as easy sometimes to see as other forms of lift, but it's, uh, it's uh, hugely helpful for soaring because once you know where it is and you can find it and you can follow it, then uh, you, can, you can often run uh, long, long distances uh, straight in straight flight without, uh, without losing altitude, basically because you're flying in, in lift. If I'm a low-time pilot then, and I want to do some convergent flying, and I don't really know much about it, but I know it's, it's there because the guys at the club are telling me there's convergence today. What is the suggestion? That, how would I go about that? Should I fly with someone else? Yeah, so I would say, I mean, it's not, it's not dangerous. Uh, convergence, it's, it's really just if you have, if you have two different uh, air masses that are coming together. And the, the reasons for those two air masses coming together could be totally different reasons. Um, and I'm not sure I know the Cumberland conditions well enough to tell you anything about your own convergence line, but I would talk to people uh, who uh, know about it and then who can tell you why it forms and uh, how it forms and when it forms uh, and typically where it forms. Uh, you can also, if you have SkySight as a soaring forecast tool, um, it has that has a great convergence forecast. So I would uh, recommend that to anyone uh, who's got SkySight. If you go on SkySight and uh, you, on the left-hand pane, that you look on the wind, uh, you will find the tab, uh, sort of a, a button for convergence. You turn that on and it will tell you where uh, convergence lines are projected to form. Uh, they're not always forming exactly where SkySight thinks they will form, but, but sometimes they form like a, a mile away. Uh, but even that is hugely helpful because if you find them a mile away, uh, <clears throat> they will still be a mile away when you go parallel. Uh, when you can go along the convergence, they'll still be a mile away, uh, ten miles, ten miles along the line. So finding convergence is is very helpful uh, because and oftentimes you don't find. You know, oftentimes the wind, uh, the lift isn't super strong along the convergence, but it's often strong enough that it uh, generates. Uh, you know. Uh, one, two, three knots of lift, and um, that you know that isn't strong enough oftentimes to circle in, but it's strong enough if you follow the line, uh, you can maintain altitude. And if if it, the lift goes stronger, you just fly slower. If the lift gets weaker, you fly a little faster, um, and uh, and this way you can sort of you know weave your way along the line um, and fly and fly straight without without having to turn, and that allows great cross country speeds if you can do it because. Um, you know, the fastest way to fly, as uh, Sebastian Kava <laughs> tells everyone, uh, the fastest way to fly is to fly forward without having to stop and turn. So as long as you can move forward on course and not having to turn, I mean, usually you get the fastest speeds. So uh, knowing where convergence lines form and how they form and why they form and finding them, I think it's, it's very, very helpful. Well, great explanation of that, and I'm looking forward to maybe get into some convergence. Yeah, I mean, so so think about it. There's different reasons for convergence lines. So I don't know exactly where why your line forms or where it forms, uh, but you often have sea breeze fronts, uh, right? So you have um, that's a very typical form of convergence for those folks who are living closer to the coasts or they're living uh, near bigger lakes. Um, when you have a cold body of water. 
and you have the land next to the body of water, there's thermals that are forming over the land because the land mass heats up more quickly, obviously, than the water during the day when the sun shines. And that heating up uh, over the land will generate a wind that is coming from the sea towards the land. Um, and if there is a prevailing wind that is going towards the body of water that is coming over the land mass, uh, the stream that is coming out from the sea and the stream that is coming from the land, those streams come together somewhere. And where those streams come together, the convergence forms. And if the, the humidity level is right, you can see the convergence um, in the sh when you look at the clouds. And very typically what you see is, is different cloud bases. So the, where the air is more moist, which is you know, if you have a sea breeze front, the air is more moist on the side on on the side towards the 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 body of water than on the body of land. But land mass is is drier, so you have higher cloud bases over the land, closer to the land mass, and you have lower cloud bases that are closer to the body of water. And what you want to do when you follow the line, uh, you want to fly under the higher cloud bases, right next to the you know, there's oftentimes curtain clouds that form, uh, which are sort of, you know, scraggly looking clouds that are hanging off the lower part of the, uh, the, the lower part of the, the clouds on the, on the more humid side, on the moisture side. And you want to fly just under the higher clouds and just to the side of the clouds that are, that are sort of hanging down, those scraggly looking clouds that are hanging down. Those are not thermals. They are just generated by, uh, you know, the moist air um, that is being pushed inland from the sea in case of a sea breeze or in the case of our convergence line, uh, what happens here is that the air over the plains to the east in Colorado is more moist than the air that is over the high mountainous areas. So our higher cloud bases are over the high mountains and the lower cloud bases are more over the lower foothills. And so where you find the line is, you know, you, you look at the step change in uh, in cloud bases, and you're following uh, along the higher cloud bases uh, along this along this uh, line where the cloud base drops off. If that makes sense, that makes for some interesting. It does. Line. It does. It also is. It's uh, it's huge. It's spectacular from a you know from a visual standpoint, especially if you have those kind of clouds form because uh, you're you're basically flying at a higher altitude. You're flying. Oh, you're flying higher than the clouds to the to the moist side. So, so you can, and sometimes there are even, there are no clouds on the higher side, but you just still have the clouds that are on the moist side, in, the, in, in which case you can basically just climb on the side of those low cloud, low hanging clouds. You just climb on the, on the drier side, right next to those clouds. And then you follow this line right along the cloud line. You know, in our case in Colorado, I mean, sometimes you can fly like hundred miles, sometimes more than hundred miles in a straight line without uh, without having to make a single turn and you just move move forward along the line it's uh, it's pretty spectacular flying and you can you know you, for us it's it's even more spectacular oh, you have nice. like on the dry side right on the one side you have on the dry side you have the very clear air you've got the rocky mountains they're in brilliant sunshine you have got um, huge visibility sometimes visibility of hundreds of miles uh, and you can you can also see the differences in air masses if you look at the at the translucency or the transparency of the air itself so on the on the side on the drier side you have got very very strong visibility uh, and on the 
on the more humid side, uh, visibility is usually more constricted. So it tends to be more murky uh, uh, is how I like to describe it. I mean, you, you maybe have visibility of like 30 miles, 40 miles, 20 miles, uh, but not hundreds of miles as you have on the dry side. So you can sometimes even on blue days, you can just recognize there's no clouds at all, but you still can, you still sometimes can recognize the, 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 where the line is simply by looking at the clarity of the air. And you're just following, you're just flying right where that, where the air becomes more murky, you're flying on the dry side, on the clearer side, and you're staying out of that murky side and you, you're still moving forward in lift. So it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's very subtle in that case, uh, but it's, uh, it's a very interesting form of, of flying. It's very technical and interesting, um, but it's not dangerous. It, there's no, the, the wind feels a bit different. It feels different from thermals. It feels different from ridge lift. It's a little, it's a little uh, an uneven kind of feel for the air. It's, it blows a little bit, so you, uh, the, your glider will not be super stable the whole time, but it's not. If there's no big turbulence or anything for the most part. It's not like... Uh, rotor lift uh, in, in wave. That's a very different characteristic. Uh, once you've experienced it and you feel it, uh, you, you get, get a sense of how it, how it feels. And that, that's another way of following the line is you basically feel where it is. And when you, when you move to one side or the other side, uh, you're getting out of that, out of that feel um, of air as you're following along. And, um, and, uh, and then you know you, you sort of you know you've moved off in, in one direction or in, in, in the other and ho hopefully you, you know which way to turn to get back to the line ah interesting wow and the views there in Colorado I know are absolutely amazing yeah it's spectacular I mean it's this is one of the one of the nicest places I'm sure to to fly in the world so it's it's it's, it's spectacular yeah now you were working on a beginner's guide to racing in the OLC, and you finished that now, right? Yeah, I just published a piece about uh, speed league flying, uh, OLC speed league flying, and uh, basically the speed league. Uh, this is a fun thing to do. I mean, this is there is no this is not a not a grand big competition, uh, but it is it's a very interesting contest. It's it's basically clubs competing against other clubs, um, and uh, it happens every year. So and it's for anyone who is hosting their flights on the OLC is already participating in it, whether they, whether they know it or not. Um, but basically, the rules are very simple. Uh, it's on uh, it, what, what counts are weekends during the OLC season, the Speed League season. The Speed League, uh, the speed league starts usually the third weekend in April and runs for 19 consecutive weeks. Uh, this year it got delayed a little bit because of the COVID situation worldwide. Uh, it didn't start until two weeks ago. So this year it started two weeks ago. And, uh, and basically the way it works is everyone uh, in any club who uploads their flights uh, to OLC, uh, the three fastest flights on any weekend will count towards the club's overall results. So you basically declare the flight that you upload and you declare which club you're flying with. And then for each club, the top three flights uh, will count towards the speed league. And uh, the rules are that uh, the, it's, it's fully the scoring gets done fully automatic. So there's nothing a pilot needs to do other than upload their flight to, to the OLC. Um, and uh, the rules are that the the fastest two and a half hour segment 
of your flight over a maximum of four legs will count towards the speed leak. So uh, what that basically says is, you know, if you're flying for three hours, let's say, and you're flying, um, you know, up, you know, along a cloud street and you're flying back along the same cloud street, you can do that four times if you want. Um, and uh, the, or you can take any course. It doesn't really matter what the course is. It just, it automatically calculates the four base legs, the four, the, the calculate your, based on four legs, the longest distance of your flight over a two and a half hour window. And then it basically takes the length of your flight and uh, it takes the two and a half hours, divides the length of your flight by two and a half hours. And that is your speed. And then it adjusts the speed based on the handicap of the glider. So uh, it's another nice thing about this competition is you don't have to have a racing machine uh, to, uh, you know, the, the latest and most expensive uh, racing glider to compete. You, you can compete with any glider. Uh, you know, 126 will, will do just fine uh, if you have soaring conditions where you can go cross country in a, in a 126. Um, so based because it will just calculate your score um, uh, and it will give you it, it takes the it takes the uh, your your speed your average speed and it applies the handicap to give you points and those points are the, those points are what is being counted then um, as the results and then as I said it takes the three best results on a weekend from three different pilots uh, of a particular club every weekend. Uh, and those three uh, scores form the club's overall score. And then um, it, you know, over the course of the season, uh, it looks at, you know, how does how, how does your club perform against other clubs? And uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a fun way of getting people to turn out to fly cross country. It encourages people to fly cross country. You don't have to have the best you know, and most expensive glider. Uh, anyone can participate. Um, and, and so the piece that I wrote about is, is to help people participate in this. Um, uh, so that, you know, it explains a little bit about the rules and it explains some tips and tricks about, you know, how to, how to get a good score and, you know, what traps to avoid and what, you know, things, yeah, things, things you can do to make sure you can, you know, you, you get a score that might count. For the for the speed league, and it's a it's a fun club level competition. Well, I will put a link to that so people can read that, check that out. Uh, that makes it a lot of fun, and having the handicapped, I think, is awesome because, like me flying the one twenty six, like you said, you know, you're not out of it. You can still jump in it and play along with everybody else. That, that's very cool. Absolutely. I mean, I think the only thing that's needed is you need to have soaring conditions that allow you to fly cross country for two and a half hours. Uh, and only four legs count. So you basically you have to go away from the airport, you know, at least some ways in one direction, and then uh, you've come, you can come back and you know pass the airport in the other direction. And it will take four four legs. Um, you know, we, we're lucky here in Boulder because we're our thermals tend to be so high that uh, in, on on many days we can do the full four legs and not even leave the glide range of of our home airport. Um, that is probably not the case where where you guys are, um, no. <laughs> because because your your typical um, uh, yeah your typical thermal height is not that high, and if you fly on the ridge, uh, obviously you, you're getting out of glide range very very quickly from uh, from the home airfield. So you do have to fly cross country, 
and um, uh, but it's it's four legs, so it's not. I mean, if you think about it, two and a two and a half hours. If you take a one twenty six, if you would a good speed in a one twenty six, it would give you a good score. It's probably going to be fifty kph would give uh, average speed would give you a really good score um, in a in a one twenty six. So if you have fifty k, uh, kph, that's thirty miles uh, per hour average. So over two and a half hours, that'll be about. You know, if you get an 80-mile flight in, 80-90-mile flight in uh, that is composed out of four legs. So let's say 80 miles, four legs, 20 miles has to be a leg of your flight. Uh, if you put your airport in the middle, you go 10 miles to one side and you, you think of that as the start point and then you go back and forth, you know, 20 miles one way passing the airport, 20 miles coming back passing the airport, 20 miles going out passing the airport, 20 miles going back. Now you've got four legs, uh, 80 miles uh, if you do that in two and a half hours, um, I think you, you you probably get a you get a re- in, in a in a one twenty six you probably get a, a decent score that will score for your club. Nice. So it's a it's a fun it's a fun way of competition and it's encouraging. It encourages I think newcomers and it it's a, it's also a great training tool for anyone who ever wants to fly, you know, any soaring contests because it it kind of forces you a little bit to. Think about where are the good conditions going to be. So you have to read the weather forecasts and you think about, you know, which which route do I think is going to be the better route? And do I want to start, <clears throat> which way, which direction do I want to start? And then which direction do I want to go next and so forth? So it doesn't have to be back and forth for legs, right? I mean, in theory, you can fly just a straight out for two and a half hours and land, you know, and... Uh, well, you can't land somewhere else. I think you have to actually come back to the home airport. That's part of the rules. Um, but uh, but um, uh, the but you could you could do an out and return, right? You only have two legs, but it would still uh, it will still count. Obviously, I'm just saying it can't be more than four legs. Right. Correct. What are your plans for this soaring season, as far as? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, this year it's it's a fun it's fun year for me. I mean, I bought my first owned glider um earlier this year in, in january so i now own a aventus uh, 2 cxt nice uh, which is really a great a great glider so i'm very happy with it um i actually wanted to fly my first contest this year but unfortunately those have been postponed uh, i mean for good reasons uh so uh, those are now next year um but there's still some you know some things i can do obviously this year practice uh, for it i will Go out to Nephi for a few days. One of my contests next year will be uh, will be in Nephi, and so I'm going to fly a week uh, with friends uh, in in Nephi and we're in, in Bruno Vassel's uh, um, uh, backyard, and uh, uh, they have got some tow planes out there for a week. Um, uh, th- that'll be in two and a half weeks, so that will be fun, um, and. Um, I think I'm, I'm hoping to get my first 750 declared flight in uh, this year. So we'll see about, uh, about that. Nice. Um, yeah. So some, those are some of the, some of the goals. Yeah. I also want to start flying with water. I've never flown with water ballast. So uh, that'll be, that'll be one, uh, that'll be one uh, thing to learn. Can you tell me a little bit about the glider you just purchased? 
Yeah, I mean it's a great glider. It's a uh, it's it's a Champiet Ventus two. So the current model obviously is the Ventus three, which came out uh, what about three years ago, something like that. So um, there's a number of uh, top pilots that have moved on from the Ventus two to the Ventus three, and uh, as a result, some Ventus twos became available. And the same is true, I think, for you know some some other gliders. Um, uh, and the the Ventus is a, it's a great glider. It's a, uh, I've got the 18 meter version. Uh, it has a sustainer engine, um, which is also helpful because it, it's going to reduce my likelihood of having to um, land out. Even though you know you got to be careful and ne never rely on on the engine. Uh, super important. Uh, always, if you have a, an engine, always start it next to an airport. Um, that's not theory. I've, I've done a lot of research on on soaring accidents, and it's one of the biggest. Uh, reasons of accidents with motor gliders that people rely on the engine so don't do that but uh if you start you know and i have never used it yet uh in order to to um self-retrieve it wasn't was never necessary i came close last weekend uh or not last weekend uh, 10 days ago on, on one particular flight um, i came close but i i uh, didn't have to do it um, but it's a so it's a it's a great glider. It's probably got about ninety eight or ninety nine percent of the performance of the top ships that you can get if you buy a new one now. But it's maybe you know sixty percent of the cost. So it's a, it's a it's a great ship. It's also super easy to fly. So I the transition the, from a I was flying discus before uh, our club this guy, uh, and the transition from a discus to the Ventus is a, is a basically a non-event i mean you have to learn to fly with flaps um, but that is uh <clears throat> that's actually it's i think it's grossly overestimated uh the the transition it's it's actually fairly straightforward uh, the only things you have to be careful with the flaps is um that you know is the, the takeoff and the landing you basically want to make sure that uh you you have on the ground roll as long as you're in ground roll you want to be in negative flaps and then uh, while you're on the ground behind the tow plane, before you take off, you move the flaps uh, back into neutral or plus one uh, position. And the same on the landing. You, you land with positive flaps or landing flaps. In our case, not landing flaps because we seem to have pretty windy conditions. So I, I, I land with plus two or plus one. Um, and then once you're on the ground and you're starting to be a little slower, you want to move the flaps into negative so that you've got more aileron um, uh, effectiveness uh, on the ground roll. Otherwise, the aileron becomes ineffective if you have uh, if you have strong positive flaps and there's a side gust. It's uh, it's hard to keep uh, track on the ground roll. So that is really the only thing that is uh, that is really different. Uh, once you're flying, uh, you basically fly with the flaps, um, which uh, I found quite interesting. Uh, you don't actually even have to move the the trim at all. The the Venus is trimmed so well. You trim it once; it's trimmed well, <laughs> extremely well, and then you basically control your speed with the flaps. So, if you're wow, in, nice. if you're thermaling, you're in plus two, and then you exit the thermal, and you sort of you know move the flaps uh, forward into into negative territory gradually, and the, the nose will lower. Uh, the nose won't even lower, but the the the, the, the glider will speed up. Uh, the horizon will basically always stay pretty even. Uh, but the, the, the ship will speed up, and when you get into lift, you just move the flap backwards, and the, the ship will slow down. So, um, and that's also what I do when I fly along a convergence line. Uh, when the lift is stronger, I'll move the flaps a little bit 
towards the positive and in and then if i want to go faster because there's not a much not much lift or no lift or weaker conditions and you move the flaps forward and you fly faster uh, that's that's really all there is to it so it's, uh, it's like like you move the trim handle back and forward in this case you just move the flaps back and forward it's not there's no there's no uh, yeah no no great mystery no, it's just something to get used to yeah exactly something to get used to yeah yeah no, it's uh, it's awesome i'm very happy about it nice it, it sounds like a, a no-brainer purchase with what you said like 90 95 percent of 98% I would say 98%. I think I can yeah I mean the the difference between you know my I'm not <laughs> you know if the 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 reason why I mean I might with a with a Venus 3 I might be like on a on a 5 hour day I might be 5 minutes faster than <laughs> with a 3 than with a 2. So I don't I don't think that matters. I think my my <laughs> if I if I you know uh, if I'm slower than other pilots it's not because it's not because my glider it's because I you know I don't have the same experience as, as some of the top guys. Well Clemens thank you for joining me today. Yeah no it's uh, always a pleasure. It's uh, it's fun. Uh, congratulations on your podcast. I I follow it every week and uh, you're doing a great job keeps getting better thank you you guys make it easy for me i just have to ask the question <laughs> <laughs> all right well i hope you get some great soaring in this year oh, i hope so too thank you very much clemens yeah okay thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure and hearing some great advice from pilots all over the globe you've been leaving some awesome reviews on apple podcast i'm so grateful for that it helps the podcast and it course it encourages me to work even harder and bring you more great content also thank you for joining our facebook group soaring the sky podcast a lot of you have joined in the past few weeks and our instagram has been growing as well i'm super excited you're helping to grow our soaring community you may have noticed we didn't have an episode last week because we want to bring you more great content we'll be releasing longer episodes packed full of even more soaring adventures and advice from pilots all over the globe but because of this we will be releasing an episode every other week don't forget to check out SkySight. matt has given us that special coupon code soaring the sky all caps it is also in the show notes so you can check it out there michelle's going to have all your social media info for you next so stay healthy stay safe and happy soaring we'll see you next time on soaring the sky if you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.